Welcome back to Via the Source, where you can get news about the entire NFL and, of course, the Miami Dolphins. Fins up. Here's Steven, your host. What's up, guys? Say Zay is October 21st. I'm Steven Masso. As always, you're listening to Via the Source. Now, in today's episode, we got some exciting news, probably the most exciting news we've had since the draft, and it is that the Miami Dolphins are naming quarterback rookie Tua Tungavailoa the starting quarterback of your Miami Dolphins. This is exciting news. It's also very shocking news. I don't think many people expected this to be happening. We're going to be going into that at the beginning of the episode. We're also going to be discussing some comments made by a writer from ESPN, some very controversial ones in regards to the state of the Dolphins' offense. And then we're also going to be discussing a question that was asked to me uh, by a listener of the podcast. So we dive right into the main headline here. The Dolphins are naming quarterback Tua Tungavailoa the starter of the team. Huge news. Very shocking. I don't think a lot of people expected it because the Dolphins are 3-3. Three and three. And I think Mike from Dolphins Talk made a good point. He said last week the Dolphins did not win because of Ryan Fitzpatrick. They won in spite of him. Brian Flores has been saying his whole time with the Dolphins, he's going to play whoever gives him the better chance to win. So if he feels like it's Tua's time right now, then who am I to argue against it? Now, this news comes two days after he had his debut, albeit it was a short stint. He played five plays. Two of them were passing plays. He went two for two for nine yards. Little short recap. The first play looked like he rolled out to the left. It was good to see his mobility on there. There was pressure in his face. Still connected with Patrick Laird on a two-yard gain. The following play was a connection to Jakeem Grant for a first down. It appears like he looked off the defender, allowing Jakeem Grant to get some space, and he converted the first down there and was the Dolphins' only one of that game. So before we discuss Tua and what some of my expectations are for him, uh, we have to talk about Ryan Fitzpatrick just a little bit because he did an absolute commendable job at being this bridge quarterback. He said the entire time that he knew he was just a placeholder for Tua. So during that time, he was going to try to teach him as much as he could could. And everything we heard from Tua and the other guys in the locker room said that he was doing an amazing job at it. It seems like Fitzpatrick almost took this kind of father figure-like approach when it came to Tua and was just trying to help him in all aspects of the game and how to be a professional. And everybody in the locker room seems to think the same thing about Tua, that he is just that guy, that his leadership is on point. He has all these, you know, just these personal elements that guys could really gravitate towards and they really like to see. Now, one thing that is a little bit, uh, I don't want to say concerning, but it was a little bit shocking was Cameron Wolf reported that the Dolphins players weren't even a alerted about this move that Tua would be uh, starting, that they were all shocked and they kind of heard the news about it the same way we all did from their phones. So that is a little bit shocking. It seems like Brian Flores just didn't have the opportunity to tell him. Nonetheless, though, I don't want to say this is a bad thing. None of the guys, I don't think, took it the wrong way from the reports. It seems like they're all fine with it and they all are really excited about what Tua could bring to the offense. Now, if you listen to my recap episode, you probably know that one of my takeaways from that game was that Tua would not be the starter after the bye week, directly after, and boy was I wrong on that. And I will say I wasn't the only one. It seemed like a general consensus feel that Fitzpatrick would remain the starter. That did not end up being the case, so I'm here to tell you guys I was completely wrong on that, and I'll admit it. And that wasn't to say that I didn't have faith in Tua. I'm very optimistic about him, and I'm still very excited about what he could do. Now, what I was a little bit concerned about were his opponents following directly after the bye week. If you look at who they go 
go up against in the first game in week eight. They will be going up against the Los Angeles Rams. And the Los Angeles Rams, I don't have to tell you who's on that defensive line. You guys know two-time defensive player of the year, Aaron Donald, is on that defensive line. He leads the NFL in sacks, and he absolutely wreaks havoc. He is a force every single game. And, you know, to be able to neutralize him is a major task for even an elite offensive line. Now we're talking about an offensive line here with Miami that is still very young, have a lot of unexperienced guys on that offensive line. You know, I still think they're talented, but you know, Aaron Donald's just a challenge. Nonetheless, I'm very worried about that. And then Jalen Ramsey, one of the elite cornerbacks in the entire NFL. As of right now, the Los Angeles Rams are fifth in the NFL in sacks. So, Tough matchup nonetheless. This isn't going to be an easy game. I don't think the Rams defense are like the 49ers defense of last year or the Patriots defense of last year where there's just no way to beat them and they just dominate the whole game, but it's still a very tough matchup. I was talking to my dad about this and he said, you know, it's a trial by fire to some extent. This isn't going to be a walk in the park. And then following the game against the Rams, Tua will be up against the Arizona Cardinals. If you just watched their last game against the Dallas Cowboys, the defense dominated that whole game. Buda Baker was having an amazing day where he had two sacks and an interception. The Cardinals right behind the Los Angeles Rams are sixth in the NFL in total sacks. Both of these defenses are very good. They send a lot of blitzes and they are able to uh, create a lot of disruption and pressure on the quarterback. So you have two very tough back-to-back games for Tua, but I'm still hopeful. I'm still optimistic. And frankly, if he performs good in these two games, you should be over the moon. You should be absolutely thrilled with that because there aren't too many defenses this year that have been playing better than both of these teams. So there's that. Now, I did post a tweet that a lot of people found very interesting. As you guys all know, Tua's jersey number is number one. He will be starting his first game on November 1st. So that is 11-1 or 1-1-1. And the game will start at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So if you're superstitious, if you believe in, you know, numerology or things like that, then you might find that extremely interesting. Now, we move on to the next topic. And it was that ESPN writer Mina Kimes had a very interesting take when she She was reporting on the news that Tua would be the starter for the Dolphins. And she had a lot of concern because she said the Dolphins offensive line is really bad. And that kind of contradicts everything that a lot of people have been reporting on from the Dolphins offensive line. That is, again, a very young unit. Uh, Throughout this season, there have been three rookies on this offensive line. And I have been reporting constantly that I have been impressed with them. I think they look solid. So I think it's important to break down. Uh, Mina Kimes is wrong on this situation. I have a ton of respect for her. I've always been a big fan of her and I love the, you know, the analysis and entertainment she brings. It's a great combination of both of those. But when it comes to this, in a vacuum, sure, maybe the Dolphins offensive line hasn't been outstanding. I've been saying that they have been solid, you know, they have been average, but you can't just look at the offensive line with zero context. I mean, you could look at Justin Herbert. Is Justin Herbert a top 10 or 15 quarterback right now? Probably not. But what people are excited about is the talent he brings, the potential of what he could be when you're looking at a rookie and you have to look at the Dolphins offensive line the same way that you're looking at that. This is a group that has been playing, you know, sure, average, but they have been playing against some tough defensive fronts in the San Francisco 49ers and the Bills and the Jacksonville Jaguars, some tough defensive lines there, and they have been holding their own. So even though they've been playing average, you have a group of young guys who, again, have no preseason, uh, who have two other veteran linemen who are on their first season with the team 
team. And for the most part, all of them are looking pretty good. I mean, Austin Jackson was looking good. Robert Hunt, after having to come in and move to right tackle, has also been, you know, pretty solid for the team. They have had their hiccups, sure. But again, this is a group of very young players and they are holding their own. So again, I don't think they are the Cowboys offensive line of like 2016. But again, this is a young group of guys who I don't think have been that much of a liability, I would say. Aside from Jesse Davis, who I still point to as the biggest problem, I'm very impressed with the young guys here. I think her take on saying the Dolphins offensive line is really bad, I don't think that's true at all. I don't think they have been bad by any stretch. If anything, you could say they're average, but with context and knowing that these are young guys, I think you have to applaud them for what they have done and not, you know, kind of uh, pit this narrative against them that they have been some sort of major issue. So those are my thoughts on that. Now we'll move on to the last topic. And it was a question that I got on Twitter from a longtime listener and supporter of the podcast, somebody that I am extremely appreciative of, especially even now. And his name is Martin. He lives over in Europe. So rugby is a little bit more of of a prevalent sport, I would say. It has a lot more, uh, you know, relevance over there than it does here in America. Of course, football rules all over here in America. And he asked a question. He said that, you know, the Denver Broncos won on the road without scoring a single touchdown and he was wondering had there ever been any team in the past that relied on just kicking field goals to win and in the future would it be a route that some less talented teams would go down he says I know with rugby is kind of a known part of their game they use a tactic called uh, I believe it's called drop goals where they kick field goals and they're basically doing that and kind of passing on the opportunity to go for the bigger score. So I had to brush up on my rugby knowledge just a little bit uh, to answer this question properly, and maybe I'm still even wrong to some extent, but the reason I think it doesn't happen in the NFL is because uh, the fluidity of possessions in rugby is a lot different. There is kind of no guaranteed possession with rugby. You can lose the ball at any moment, so the chance of not scoring with your possession is a lot higher, whereas with football, you generally have those four downs at least. The chances of you turning it over are a lot more slim than in rugby. So when it comes to football, you're kind of obligated to use those four downs each time you get the ball. And the only times that I think it doesn't happen are when you're down by two possessions or let's say 10 points and there's only a few seconds or a minute left in the game. You'll see a team kick the field goal, get the guaranteed points, and then go back, go for the onside kick with the potential to get the Hail Mary on the last play. But a Aside from that, it seems like teams generally are always going to use their downs and try to get the touchdown, and if they can't get it, then they'll concede with going for a field goal, and most teams will be happy with that. So when it comes to field goals in the NFL, I think teams approach it more with kind of this idea that they're settling with three points as opposed to with rugby, it kind of seems like they're trying to sneak a few points, so I think that's different. But in terms of other little uh, little tricky tactics that teams in football use, something that happens in the NFL, I guess, somewhat prevalently, not really, but you see some teams do it. And I'm looking at the Steelers with Coach Tomlin over there in Pittsburgh. Something they would do is they had a very high rate of going for two-point conversions, kind of way above the average. So they kind of looked at it as a way that they're willing to lose that somewhat guaranteed point 
for the risk of getting an extra one. So that's something that's kind of uh, used more frequently in the NFL. And then something that is used very rarely, but I heard about it in a few high school teams, was that they wouldn't punt the ball. They would go for it every single fourth down, which is very tough to do. If you have an electric offense in high school, you could see it working because there is just such a big disparity in the skill gaps between certain teams, you know? And I heard some people float the idea when the Chiefs were having that MVP season with Mahomes two years ago, like should they just go for every fourth down because they're that productive? But it's just so risky. I don't think something like that will ever happen in the NFL where a team is going for every single fourth down. But it's entertaining to see, you know, I hear about it working successfully by that one team in high school. But again, the NFL is just a league where games are won and lost by inches. So you'll see teams make very calculated decisions to kind of try to minimize risks at times and get the guaranteed points. So I don't see teams giving up field positions by going for it on fourth downs like that or, uh, you know, uh, going for field goals before it's fourth down and leaving potential uh, points on the board. I don't see that happening uh, the same way it does in a sport like rugby. But I hope I answered your question good enough. But that is how I'm going to wrap up this episode. Guys, as always, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at via the source and at Shady Steven. If you have a YouTube channel, all I ask is that you go subscribe to that. That would be a tremendous help. I'm trying to hit the 500 subscriber mark. That would be a huge milestone for me. And if you have any other topics or questions that you would like for me to discuss in future episodes, feel free to send them my way and I will gladly talk about it in the following episode. And that is how I'm going to wrap it up, guys. Until next time, I'm Stephen Masso and this was Via the Source.